Hey there, Workplace Warriors. If you are looking to build profitable, lifelong relationships, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Do This, Sell More podcast, where you can make more money than you ever imagined and still get home in time for dinner. Don't miss out on expert tips and strategies from best-selling author Dave Lorenzo and his high-performing guests. The formula is easy. Listen and take action. In other words, do this, sell more. Now here's your host, the master of relationship sales strategy himself, Dave Lorenzo. Welcome to another edition of the Do This Sell More show. Today we are speaking with someone who you have asked me to bring on the show. That's right, you've asked me several questions related to the law and the legal aspects of your business. And today I have with me probably the best person to answer these questions. I have Russell Berger with me and Russ is an attorney with the law firm of Offit Kerman. For those of you who don't know, Offit Kerman is the fastest growing law firm on the East Coast. They have offices in As of today, 12 different cities. By the time you watch this, it probably will be 14 or 16 different cities, ranging from New York all the way down to Charlotte, and they're growing and expanding at a rapid pace. The reason I want Russ to be on the show is I have regular conversations with Russ every month, sometimes even more frequently than that, about employment law and how business owners, entrepreneurs, sales leaders get in trouble for not following good business practices, and then they get sued, and lawsuits are super expensive. So today on the Do This, Sell More show, we're going to talk about what you can do when you have to fire a top performer. We're going to talk about non-compete agreements and why they're so important with your sales team. And we're also going to get into, as long as we have enough time at the end, things that you say that cost you a ton of money when your employees become disgruntled and they decide they no longer want to work with you. So let me tell you why I want Russ here on the show. I'm going to read you his bio, but for me, I think Russ is the kind of guy who can take difficult, complex issues in labor and employment and break them down into really easy to understand business realities. And that's something that you don't find very often in an attorney. But Listen, Russ's bio reads this way, and I'm only going to read a portion of it because it's huge, and I'm going to put a link down in the description of the show to his bio so you can be as impressed as I am with him. Russ is an accomplished labor and employment attorney, and he's the practice group director of the labor and employment practice at Offit Kerman. Russ provides business counsel to employers on employee matters and is well-versed in litigating in both state and federal courts. Now, This is why Russ is so valuable to us. Russ just doesn't do your documents for you. If somebody decides that they're going to sue you, Russ goes to court and he fights for you in the states in which he is licensed and also in federal court. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Russ Berger to the show. Russ, welcome. Thanks for having me, Dave. Happy to be here. All right, so Russ, give us the overview of your role with an entrepreneurial business. Let's say we're talking now to a business owner who does $15 million in in revenue. He's got a sales team that's out there killing it for him every week. He may have some administrative employees and he may have two or three operations folks. What is it that you do to help those people? Well, I, I really think I'm a partner for that business owner. And I say that because if you're big enough that you have employees, you're big enough that you have employee problems. And, and the, that could be on the positive side as well as on the negative side. So 
when you have employees, you have risk. There's things that can go wrong. There's problems that you could you could run into. And if you don't know what those problems are, and if you're not prepared for them, you know you're likely you're far more likely to encounter them. Then on the flip side, um, there's things that you can do to get more out of your employees, and you know that some of that's on the more more of the HR side than the legal side. There are things you can do from a legal side um, to protect yourself, to protect your business, and to maximize the value of your employees. And I know we're going to get into non-competes a little bit, but that's one of the big items. Um, you know that, that we, you know we can work out from a legal side to help a growing business. Okay, Ross. So this is something that people come to me with all the time. They have a salesperson who is a good salesperson, but they're a cancer in the workplace. They're just not going to be a good fit for the team. And the business owner is conflicted from a business standpoint, so they tolerate this bad behavior. And finally, the business owner's just had enough, and he comes to me and he says, Dave, how do I get rid of this person? What is the right way to address first performance issues and then behavioral issues in the workplace? Should we have a process in place to handle these things? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, sometimes depending on what the behavior is, it might be a progressive discipline plan. Um, on the other hand, you know, if it's just uh, you know insubordination, you know, maybe maybe it's a little bit more direct. Um, but you know, basically the way I, I approach it is, you know, with the the age-old adage in mind that it, uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail, and that's really true when it comes to terminations. Because what ends up happening is, um, you know, even if someone's an at-will employee, which means you can, in theory, hire or fire them for any reason at any time, um, even if they're an, uh, an at-will employee, the problem exists when. You know, you haven't been disciplining them. You haven't been addressing any of the performance issues or the behavioral issues. And you finally have enough, and you decide to terminate them. And all the while, they've been getting you know good scores in their performance evaluation, or at least adequate, sufficient scores. And then they say, "Well, you must be terminating me because I'm a member of a protected class, or for some improper, unlawful reason." And when you don't document, when you don't engage in some kind of process. Um, you leave yourself vulnerable to those claims, you don't have the evidence needed to prove that, hey, I'm not terminating this person because of their membership in, in a protected class. I'm terminating them because they were disrespectful, they were insubordinate, they um, were rude to their fellow employees, they missed their performance-wise. Um, it's always nice to think, and, and being a litigator, I think I think in these terms of, if we go to court and we have to convince a judge or a jury of the reason for our termination, you know, it's going to work a lot better if we have documented evidence. So any process we put in place should have that documented evidence, uh, should create that documented evidence so that we have it for future use. Um, the, the, the other uh, more practical benefit of that, because most people you terminate are not going to sue you, although terminating someone is probably, the, you know, it certainly increases the risk of a lawsuit because if you get terminated, you're inclined you know, you don't have a job, you're desperate, and you're you're sad about it. You mentioned progressive discipline, and you mentioned a performance improvement plan. So the best thing for me to do, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we'll do a live case study here. I bring my employee in, and I say, hey, Frank, listen, your sales results for the last three months have been subpar. 
I'd like to see you over the next quarter, the next three months, get your results up by 10%. Here's what I'm going to do to help you. I'm going to meet with you once a week and review the basics of the, the requirements of your role, the minimum requirements of your role. I'm going to retrain you on the strategies that we discussed when you were first hired, the strategies for you, to help you sell. I'm going to pair you once a month with our best salesperson so that you learn the best practices. And then you and I are gonna meet formally at the end of the month to discuss how you did, what you need help with, if there are any barriers in place. That's the performance improvement plan. Now, listen, if you don't improve in the next quarter, unfortunately, I'm going to have to discontinue your employment with us because you're just not meeting the minimum requirements of the position. And then you write that down, you document that conversation, and you should have a witness too to that conversation who's there, probably his supervisor or another person in, in some leadership position. Did I get all that right? Is that how progressive discipline works? Yeah, so, well, that's the first step, and, and it's a okay. pretty good first step, and obviously, uh, progressive discipline is a thing where you can go through the steps relatively quickly, uh, if depending on the severity of the conduct. So failing to meet performance goals is one where you probably would give people some lead time. And, and Dave, I, I mean, you did a really good job of laying it out. Um, something um, refer that that in the HR world that we refer to as desk method, D E S C. And basically, I, mean, I was listening as you were doing, it and you hit them. Number one, D. You describe the problem so you know here's what you're failing and so the employee understands exactly where they're falling short um, e you explain the consequences of that so you know you're not hitting your sales goals you're not paying for yourself you're not helping the company grow uh, you, and you, you lay all that out you know s uh, is the solutions and so you know, like you said here's what here's our plan you know, here's the coaching that we're going to give you here's the stuff that we're going to give you um, you know, the other part of that is when that is setting the expectations, and and so you know we expect your sales to improve by ten percent next month or over the next thirty days or or sixty days, ninety days, whatever the measurement period is. Um, and then at the end of that, C is call for commitment. So you get the employee to buy in on that. Um, and it's pretty much what you did in in your example there. And um, you know, and then once you finish that. Um, you know, you probably want to document it. That's usually a good idea. And like you said, depending on the, the nature of the conversation, um, you know, if it's just that and it's really a sales management uh, or a performance management conversation, you know, maybe you just have the supervisor, the manager involved. Um, but it never hurts to have a second person there. Um, and if it were something that was more of an HR issue, like a behavioral issue, um, you'd almost certainly want a higher level supervisor or an HR person in the room when you're having the conversation. Um, and then the progressive part of the discipline is you continue to track that, you continue to follow it, and you know, it works a little bit better with behavioral issues than performance issues, but if it's behavioral, you know, this isn't gonna happen again, you know, we're gonna continue to track it, and if it happens again, you know, you're gonna be suspended. And if it happens after that, you, know, you might be uh, you know, suspended for a longer period of time. And then if it happens again, we're going to terminate you. So, the, the basic premise of progressive discipline is, you know, the penalty you as an employee is going to be increased as, uh, you know, as repeated bad behavior occurs. And and while I think it's a little bit easier or more obvious in the behavioral context, 
I think it still does apply in the performance context as well. Um, you know, you're not suspending someone for performing poorly, but you might go from, you know, a friendly conversation in some office to a written performance improvement plan to a 90-day warning to termination. Russ, let's take a step back now and let's talk about non-compete agreements because I have a lot of people who watch us on YouTube, listen to the podcast, who are salespeople, and they say to me, hey, I'm starting a new job and I have this non-compete agreement. From a salesperson perspective, the employer is always gonna try and get the broadest agreement possible, but I know from my own personal experience managing salespeople that those broad agreements, they're not enforceable. So tell me, if I'm a salesperson, what am I looking for in a reasonable non-compete? Well, step number one would be to determine which state law applies, because different states have different laws. Um, you know, I'll talk about it kind of on a general level, but depending on your state, um, you can get a different answer. And frankly, if you're in California, you're not subject to non-competes. Uh, you know, that's that's the best for the employee salesperson perspective. Um, but then, you know, assuming that it applies, you know, the law generally has, a, in most places, has a test about that says, um, you know, a, it's, a non-compete can be enforced to the extent it's reasonable. And reasonable is one of those terms that lawyers use. It doesn't, that, that means a whole lot and nothing all at the same time. And so it's hard to parse through without knowing all the specifics of a, of a given situation what is reasonable. Um, but obviously from a salesperson perspective, especially if you, uh, you know, if you're not coming in cold, if you're a valued commodity on the market, um, you do have leverage in negotiating down your non-compete. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we see negotiated the most in higher level employment agreements. Um, cause I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, we, we want to make sure you have an exit plan and you want to make sure that, you know, if this goes south and and it goes south in a way that I'm not absolved from my requirement to comply with it on compete. You know, can I go get another job? Can I still survive? You know, can I have income? Um, you know, if this ends. So I think from a, a mental exercise or a thought exercise, you know, you ought to ask yourself, if I leave the company and this is going to apply to me, can I go do something that will, you know, allow me to to make money, be fulfilled, and you know, whatever it is that you might be interested in doing after this job ends. Um, and then getting into the specifics a little bit, um, you know, Dave, you mentioned uh, national non-compete agreements. And typically, uh, in most places, the, a non-compete agreement is going to have to be limited in terms of temporal scope, which is time, and geographic scope. Um, sometimes customer lists can be substituted for geographic scope. Uh, but when we talk about geographic scope, um, we're again applying, you know, the test of reasonableness. And reasonableness is defined by the judge that's hearing your case and whether he or she is in a good mood, whether he or she likes employees or employers, whether, you know, he or she, you know, had a crappy commute into the courthouse that day. Um, it depends on a lot of things that we can't necessarily predict. So, you know, we try to do our best and, and uh, leverage these when we negotiate them as much as possible. But, um, but in some cases, a national uh, geographic scope is applicable. And you know, a good example of that, if you're selling tech product and you're selling it across the country, um, that makes sense. You know, I'm I'm here in Baltimore. If you're selling, uh, you know, uh, 
crabbing appliances and, and, and you know, the technology and the products to go out on the bay and catch crabs, um, it's probably not going to make sense to have a national restriction. So it's going to be very specific to the type of industry that you're in and whether or not you actually sell um, your product in all the places the non-compete says you can't compete in after your employment ends. Fair enough. Uh, folks, if you are just joining us and you've caught this YouTube video in the middle or you're jumping back into the podcast in the middle, I want to encourage you to do something as a favor to me. I want you to hit the subscribe button on YouTube and ring the little notification bell. Click that notification bell there. And the reason I want you to do that is because I host a daily show called the Dave Lorenzo Daily. We release a new video every day at 5 p.m. And I don't want you to miss out. So if you subscribe and you click that notification bell, you'll be reminded when we release a new video. In addition, we are going to start doing these interviews live. My interview today with Russ is my 20th interview. We're eventually going to do these live. And I want you to be notified when we do them so you can ask questions of my experts in real time. So please hit the red subscribe button, click the notification bell. I appreciate it. And if you're listening on the podcast, be sure and go to YouTube and subscribe on YouTube because there's all kinds of behind the, behind the scenes stuff that happens here that you miss out on if you don't join us on YouTube. All right, so Russ, last question about non-competes and then really quickly, um, we're not going to do it justice, but I get questions about harassment all the time. So I want to ask you about something specific in that area. But related to non-competes, is my case as an employer stronger if I provide consideration for them not to compete? So if I pay them and specifically put in their employment agreement that as consideration for not competing, they're going to get a year's salary, does that make my case stronger? Does it make a difference? Is it just goodwill? What does that do to the, to the, to the you know... Yeah, it makes your case stronger uh, from a legal perspective and then from the practical perspective as well. Because if you're going to court and you ask a judge to put somebody out of a job uh, and to make someone unemployed, judges don't want to do that. But if you can say to that same judge, yeah, judge, you shouldn't let this person work, but you know they're also going to get you know a base salary for the next 12 months, not work for the next 12 months. It makes it a lot easier for a judge to get on board with what you're asking the court to do. Yeah, well, the downside is that that's a financial investment, but the way I counsel my clients is that they're making a financial investment in preventing a big, big problem. They're preventing a, they're preventing a huge fight, and they're also buying goodwill among the people that this person is going to speak to. So when the person, when you know, the person's friends at work come up to them and go, "Oh my God, I can't believe he fired you. That's crazy." You know, what are you going to do? You're not going to be able to compete. Everybody's employment agreement in the real world. I know this is probably not true, but in theory, everybody's employment agreement should be the same. They know that this person's getting a certain amount of money not to compete. Everybody views that as more fair than just being kicked to the curb. Not just the judge, but the people who are left in the workplace. So in that regard, you're buying goodwill with that, both in the beginning when people sign the employment agreement and when you let go the person who everybody knows should have been let go probably months ago. When you let them go, they're like, well, it's not like they're not going to be able to eat for six months or for a year. They're going to get paid, so they should be able to find another job in, in that period of time. Um, all right, last, uh, the last thing I want to touch on, because I get a lot of questions on this all the time, 
explain to us, and we don't have time, folks. I, I know I'm going to get a million questions about this, and I welcome those questions. We'll have Russ back on in the future. He'll be our, our uh, employment law correspondent here. But um, I get a lot of questions about the difference between quid pro quo uh, sexual harassment or harassment and third-party harassment. And I'm, I'm amazed that sophisticated business people don't understand how bad third-party harassment is and how and the liability that they're exposed to. So do us a favor and give us the everyday you know, person explanation for both quid pro quo and third-party harassment so that everybody understands that this stuff is not acceptable in any workplace and you're exposing yourself to huge liability if you mess around with it. Sure. So, so I'd probably break it down into three parts. Number one is uh, harassment that you know, that you're subjected to as a condition of your employment, which means you know you come to work, you're subjected to the behavior, whether it's you know a boss that harasses uh, a staff member or you know somebody who makes a comment every time you walk past his or her desk. Um, it just becomes a condition of employment, and and submission to the conduct. Is becomes part of what's expected to, of, of the employee in that situation. So, for example, um, you know, we, you see it a lot with you know a lot of the news stories that came out of the Me Too movement. Is you know people were consenting in the sense that um, you know from a legal sense uh, with sexual assault crimes, they were consenting uh, to the the conduct, um, but they weren't really willful. And willful is the standard from a sexual harassment. Uh, gender discrimination legal claim standpoint. So, um, you know, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, the Me Too conduct and some of the examples I gave about somebody making a comment in the workplace. Um, but, you know, the, the main point is that, especially when you have fluctuating power dynamics in a workplace, if you have someone who's got authority or supervisory responsibility and they impart kind of their behavior and they make, uh, they condition someone else's employment on being subjected to their bad behavior, you know, that can create liability for a company. The second category uh, is the more traditional quid pro quo, uh, which is, you know, if you want a promotion, if you want to stay employed, if you want to, you know, go forward here at this company, you are going to agree to my sexual advances. Um, so that's a pretty straightforward definition. And then the third category um, is what I would call hostile work environment. And hostile work environment uh, means severe and pervasive conduct according to, again, a reasonable person standard um, that makes working in the workplace intolerable. And so sometimes, uh, you know, the severity and the pervasiveness can be on one of a sliding scale. So if there's a sexual assault that takes place, it doesn't have to be pervasive in the sense that it goes on for months and months. It's severe enough that it qualifies as a hostile work environment, whereas certain comments um, said in the workplace um, might need to, you know, if you just made one bad hope that you know you thought you were being funny but you're really being offensive that can get you in trouble but doing it one time probably isn't going to get you sued doing it five times or ten times very well met um, so and not that the one time is okay because it isn't and it creates a whole bunch of other problems in the workplace um, but you know but it, it's probably not you know it's obviously not the same thing from a liability risk standpoint as some of the other uh, bad conduct, like the conduct we've heard a lot about uh, in the Me Too movement. Um, so those are those are the three main categories. And, you know, again, we spend a lot of time uh, litigating and advising and counseling through how work environment claims, because the first two categories are pretty obvious. 
and they're pretty obviously wrong. It pretty obviously shouldn't happen. And the council, when those things happen, is pretty easy. And typically, if it's you know egregious enough, which it often is, you fire the person and you move, who's committing the conduct, and you uh, try to do everything you can to do right by the the victim of the conduct. Uh, hostile work environments, a little, you know, can veer into more of a gray area, um, and you know, we spend a lot of time uh, litigating over which of the gray areas certain conduct might be on. So the the advice I usually give to business owners and to managers is, you know, you shouldn't be the uh, the arbiter of what's unlawful and what's not. Uh, if anything comes up, you know, your your goal should be to have the alarm bells go off for your managers. And when the alarm bells go off, you get HR involved, you get lead counsel involved, and you come up with a plan for working through the problem. Because especially in the hostile work environment context, sometimes the solution might be counseling. Sometimes the solution might be suspension. Sometimes the solution might be termination. Um, it's really going to be fact specific. And as we alluded to earlier with the discussion of progressive discipline, um, you know, if it's if it's you know not severe or not extremely severe, like I said, the solution might be counseling. But you must skip a couple steps and go right to termination if it's you know egregious sexual harm. All right. Well, that was that was a really good explanation in a in a really concise way. So I appreciate that, folks. I want to let you know this is not legal advice. Legal advice you pay for. This is free. So you're not getting legal advice here. Be sure and consult your own attorney before you implement any of the things we've discussed here. This interview is designed to help you make better decisions and think about things in a different way. And that's why I brought Russ Berger to you today, because he's an expert on these topics within the guidelines of federal law and within the guidelines of law in the state of Maryland. So please do me a favor and check with your own attorney before you act on any of this information. Now that I've said that, Russ, thank you so much. You've been just a wealth of information and we really appreciate you being here. And I am going to dub you our official employment correspondent here on the Do This Sell More show. We'll have you back whenever we get a handful of questions on areas of employment law in practice. Tell me uh, and tell our viewers and our listeners, how can they get a hold of you if they have a specific issue they want to discuss, whether it's a federal issue or if they want a referral to an attorney in their state or if they're in Maryland and they have a legal issue, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, thank you for dubbing me the official employment uh, correspondent of the podcast. I'm uh, <laughs> happy to fill that role um, and happy to talk about these issues. I go a lot longer than a half hour uh, once you get me rolling on these things. Um, but I, I am, uh, like as Dave said at the beginning of the show, I'm an attorney at Curriman, um, and you know we've got a mid-Atlantic presence. I'm in our Baltimore office. Um, my phone number is 410-209-6449. My email is rberger, that's R-B-R-G-E-R, at offitkerman.com, and that's spelled O-F-F-I-T-K-U-R-M-A-N, and uh, I try to share a lot of content through my LinkedIn channels as well. Um, and, and Dave said in the disclaimer, um, you know, the main reason we do these things is to push information out. And obviously, you know, we're not solving specific problems when we do this. But my main goal is to uh, you know, teach people what they don't know, because um, it's much better to do the work up front and to do counseling work than it is to uh, get caught in the litigation and learn the hard way. Um, so this is really just you know, it should be taken as kind of a prompt to ask yourself some questions about your employment practices and, you know, are you doing enough? Are, are you aware of, uh, you know, some of the challenges that we talked about? And 
if you're not doing things to address them, uh, you know, it's something you probably ought to get out in front of. That'll do it for another edition of the Do This Sell More show. Thanks for joining us today. Special thanks to my new legal correspondent for employment law, Mr. Russ Berger. His information is listed on the screen and you can see it down below in the description of the show. It's in the show notes if you're listening as a podcast. It's on my website if you are... Uh, watching this video on my website. And if you're watching this on YouTube, it's down in the description uh, in the YouTube box. You can reach out to Russ. Whether you need a lawyer for labor and employment issues or any issue in New York, Philadelphia, Maryland, Virginia, down south to North Carolina, really, if you need a lawyer anywhere on the East Coast, give Russ a call. Talk about your issue with Russ. If he can help you, he will. If he can't, he's going to connect you with somebody who can. He's that good a guy. Until next time, I'm Dave Lorenzo, and here's hoping you do this and sell more. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Give us your feedback on each episode and get access to our free sales training course at dothissellmore.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Do This, Sell More.